Welcome to the 15th in our series of podcasts. In this latest edition of the Encephalitis podcast, I am delighted to be joined by Professor John Stone, who is consultant neurologist and professor of neurology in Edinburgh, and Dr. Tim Nicholson, who is a neuropsychiatrist at the Institute of Psychiatry, Psychology and Neuroscience, King's College, London. So we are in great hands for this conversation, which is going to be on functional neurological disorder, or FND as it's sometimes referred to. Welcome to both of you to the Encephalitis podcast. Thanks very much, Aidan. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. You're so welcome. Well, look, I think, you know, we're going to start at the beginning. And, and Tim, I'm, I'm going to ask you first to, to just tell us briefly, what is functional neurological disorder? Uh, thanks, Ava. So it's actually a surprisingly complicated question because it's a particularly complicated disorder at the interface of neurology and psychiatry and therefore really body and mind and our models and understanding of this disorder have evolved a lot over uh, hundreds of years and are still evolving as we speak um, so it goes by a lot of names uh, and it's previously gone by the name of hysteria and conversion disorder which has a more sort of Freudian sort of uh, connotations but it's now known as FND or functional neurological disorder because we're, we're sort of more aware that it's a complex brain disorder at the interface uh, of neurology and psychiatry. Uh, but in, in simple senses, it's really a, a real and common cause of often severe neurological symptoms that can often get misdiagnosed and missed, but that can be very severe and highly impairing, uh, which can be distinguishable from uh, other causes. So it's, it, it's, it's relatively uh, easy and robust to do that with, if you've got sufficient expertise. I think that's just a brief overview of what it is. And, and Tim, how, how do patients present with FND? Are there any common presentations? Uh, yes, it, it sort of can and does mimic almost any combination of neurological symptoms, but the most common uh, symptoms would be seizures, uh, weakness of muscles, which could be leg, arm or face, um, uh, but also movement disorders. So tremors, jerking movements, spasms are common as our sensory changes from loss to paresthesias and pins and needles to pain syndromes. Um, but also increasingly recognises cognitive or memory problems, which uh, some classification systems see as separately, but we all commonly see alongside the other symptoms I've mentioned, but also can be discrete on their own and very, uh, again, quite common and highly impairing uh, cause of cognitive or memory problems. Well, thanks for that. Um, John, I'll turn to you. A lot of the symptoms that we've just heard about um, seem to me to be similar to, to those seen in some other neurological diseases, such as multiple sclerosis, encephalitis, of course, Parkinson's, epilepsy. Is this a challenge for doctors when it comes to diagnosing functional neurological disorder? And, and, and it, it, you know, indeed, how is it diagnosed? Yes, yeah, so that's, that's a good question. I mean, in fact, if you think about it, there aren't that many neurological symptoms. Um, you know, you can have a weak leg, you can have confusion, tremor. The list isn't that long, and yet there are hundreds of different neurological conditions. So one of the common errors in thinking here is that people, uh, that, that, that pe some people think that FND is a condition you diagnose when someone has neurological symptoms, but you can't find a brain disease to go along with it. And that's absolutely not the case. Some people do that. If they're doing it like that, then they're doing it wrong. So we make this diagnosis based on, in the same way that we do for MS and Parkinson's, on typical clinical features, things that only happen in FND, um, but don't and, and, and don't happen in other conditions. So we have 
clinical signs such as Hoover sign of leg weakness or the tremor entrainment test or a typical clinical features of a functional seizure or FMV seizure. These are things that we know are repeatable and robust and uh, mark out a group of a group of patients and symptoms that are that that have the potential to be treated by FMD related treatments. So yes, it is difficult sometimes to tell the difference and in particularly because there are patients that will come to have both FMD and another neurological condition. And that's why we need, you know, we do need uh, practitioners who are very experienced in neurology and learn to tell the difference. Um, so yes, it's a really good question. It's not just about symptoms and not finding a disease. That's a very, that's the old way and really needs to be erased, I think. Well, functional neurological disorder is something that seems to cross paths with encephalitis. Of course, that's why we're doing this podcast. Um, and it's something that certainly poses a challenge for our support team at the Encephalitis Society, who, of course, um, always uh, want to give the right advice. And, and they've described for me um, kind of three scenarios. And I'd like to put them to you, to you John, for, for your comment. Um, so first of all, for example, we have people who approach us who've been diagnosed diagnosed with encephalitis, but who turn out to have functional neurological disorder. Um, why, why do you think that is? Yeah, so it's, well, we see, as, we, as I'm sure we'll come to, we see misdiagnosis in both directions. So, of course, nobody wants to have a misdiagnosis. It's very distressing for, for the patients and the doctors who've made it. Um, but I think uh, there's, there's a number of reasons why people and I think it's probably more common actually that people with FMD end up being misdiagnosed with, with another neurological condition. Um, it's sometimes that people have done a blood, uh, that, that they're not looking for these positive features of the condition. So that if they look at the person in front of them and examine them and think about their symptoms and how they are uh, changing over time or changing the different examination tests, they might raise the possibility of FMD a bit earlier rather than seeing it as a diagnosis of exclusion, which many people do. Um, the, other, the other issue that comes along is that people end up doing uh, tests which raise the possibility of encephalitis without thinking about how, how sensitive and specific are these tests. So if you have a very low titer of, a, of an antibody, for example, some of the, you know, the VJKC antibodies, et cetera, can be false positive sometimes. So you end up making a diagnosis uh, wrongly for that reason. Or you might see something on a brain scan that uh, hints at encephalitis, but turns out to be um, a benign or common change in the population or an artifact of the scan or something like that. So many reasons. And then finally, I think there's a kind of bias amongst patients and doctors that they, when, when you're ill and you've got disabling symptoms, you want to hear that you've got a condition that other people have heard of that is unequivocally not your fault, et cetera. I mean, FMD is not anyone's fault either. And that's that's one of the things we need to change. But there's a bias that heads in that direction, I think. Yes. 
And I think you you, you, you alluded to this um, uh, in what you were just talking about. So our second scenario is patients who come to us who are recovering from uh, autoimmune encephalitis, but who were initially misdiagnosed as FND. This could seem strange to many listeners who are familiar with autoimmune encephalitis as some of the symptoms that we've talked about, seizures, sensory issues, for example, they seem to be a perfect fit um, for FND as, as, you know, for want of a better word. That's our, our our second scenario is that is that something you're familiar well, with well there's, there's there's a couple of things going on here so i think there are there are patients who present with unusual um types of uh, neurological symptoms for example facial dystonic seizures and lgi1 where the eg might be normal for example and someone might say oh the eg is normal you've got fnd and that's a good example of how you shouldn't diagnose fnd through normal tests um, but you should look at the look at the symptoms in front of you and think, well, could this be could this be LGI one? Um, if I think if people do that properly, that these errors are much less are much less likely to occur. So quite a lot of the published misdiagnoses cases where someone said, oh, we called it FND and it turned out to be encephalitis, are like that actually. When you look at them, they, there was no there was never any clear evidence of FND. But the other scenario is that there are patients who definitely do have FND and I've met I've seen these patients too I've seen a patient have a functional seizure in the in the sort of prodrome of their NMDA encephalitis now it was functional seizure they also had anxiety they also had panic so you can have FND or psychiatric problems as part of encephalitis the two are not mutually exclusive um, and so it's not always a misdiagnosis it's just that it's an incomplete diagnosis and the person at that point perhaps should have been thinking, well, why has this person developed FND now? Can I put together all of the different things that are going on? Is this really typical FND or could this person also be developing another neurological condition? And, and just, just for clarity for our listeners, um, John, you mentioned a functional seizure there. Just how does that differ? What, what do we mean by a functional seizure? What we're looking for in an yeah an F functional seizure or FND seizure is is it's that there's a number of things that that happen. For example, um, at least a third of the patients will will have an episode where they become suddenly motionless and unresponsive and lie with their eyes closed for several minutes. Now there isn't another condition in neurology or psychiatry that presents like that. It just that's just a sort of fact of of, uh, of clinical observation. Um, if someone's having an episode where they're shaking all over, you're looking for a, quite a long episode usually. So, so epileptic seizures very rarely last longer than 90 seconds, um, whereas functional seizures will often last for many, many minutes. Um, the eyes will often be closed rather than open. Patient might be breathing fast instead of stopping breathing. Um, and there are other things too. So each of these on their own isn't necessarily that reliable, but you put them together. So this is this is clinical neurology. Um, and so you, you do want to have those things. A, a functional seizure, if it's like anything, if it, it's a bit like a cousin of a panic attack in terms of what's going on in the brain. It's a red alert state and then the brain sort of shutting down to get rid of that red alert state. That's the kind of pathophysiology of it. Uh, but it just happens to look like an epileptic seizure at times. 
Awesome. That's really helpful. Thank you. Um, and our third and final scenario that we see at the Encephalitis Society, um, John, is there are people who are recovering from encephalitis, infectious or autoimmune, um, who then go on to develop functional neurological disorder. Is FND something that can emerge later as a result of encephalitis? Absolutely. So one of the strongest risk factors for FND generally, and this is something I think that was appreciated 100 years ago and sort of got rather forgotten, is, is the presence of, an, of another neurological condition. So, for example, about 20% of people with FND seizures have epilepsy. Now, if you look at those patients, they've nearly always had epilepsy first. So they've had experience of having epilepsy. It's terrifying. You don't know when you're going to have a seizure. Um, that, in its, that process of experiencing epilepsy creates a, a, a vulnerability and risk of developing FND. So it's not a case of either or. We very often see patients who have a neurologic, have a condition like uh, encephalitis or they've had it and they've got FND and the, and the two things are there together. And the reason it's important to distinguish them is that I think they have different treatments. And if you obviously, if someone's still having seizures and it turns out to be FND seizures, well, you want different treatments than if it's, if it's epilepsy. So we need a, I think we need a sort of medical climate where we just regard FND as, as any other type of diagnosis, which we can put on the list of possible causes and which, which has a particular treatment attached to it. Absolutely. Tim, I'm going to turn to you. Um, what would your advice be to someone who thinks that they've got FND? Is there a pathway that people can follow? And, and what type of professionals deal with FND? Um, you know, who should, who should they be uh, being uh, treated, diagnosed or assessed by? Um, thanks. And um, yes, it's, a, it's, it's an interesting question because I think, um, as John hinted at, there's, there's quite varied knowledge and expertise around uh, FND, and I think huge strides have been made in the last decade or so uh, of raising awareness and increasing clinical skills. But it's still largely a, a specialist diagnosis that uh, particularly for sort of more complex ones or when there's two, you know, disentangling two potential disorders. Um, so, so I think a neurologist is generally the key person for that um, and and sometimes that needs to be someone with a particular expertise in seizures or movement disorders to, to unpick the, the the clinical phenotypes but the majority a sort of general neurologist will be uh, able to to pick apart and a good good general physician who's got experience of this um, so that, that's been the shift that it used to be thought it was much more of a psychiatric disorder where a psychiatrist would need to find trauma or stress and that's very much been the sort of shift that that's not what's needed for the diagnosis is these positive signs that distinguish it from other disorders as John mentioned so the neurologists are really key um, there, there is a sort of subspecialty of, of psychiatry called neuropsychiatry who, who many encephalitis patients might sometimes see as well but but the, those professionals sort of uh, specialise in this area as well at that interface of neurology and psychiatry so sometimes they they might have the the skills to disentangle this sort of case but uh, but I think that's really in the realm of specialists but I think our sort of mission and sort of dream is that this can because it's such a common important disorder is that this could be something that's part of the core curriculum and because it's so common that people can start to unpick this um, so for example patients could present you know, like with a stroke-like presentation and uh, and that's really important to sort of pick out in, in A&E so emergency department workers need to be able to unpick this and same for people presenting with acute seizures whether that because these are very common sort of uh, differential diagnoses of other 
disorders such as epilepsy or stroke acutely. So, uh, but I think the other key professionals um, to involve are, are physiotherapists um, and occupational therapists and psychologists. Uh, so we all, all play a part in a sort of multidisciplinary approach to this disorder. And a lot of these other professionals are very good at because they, they they see the distinct phenotypes of the different the functional FND versus the other types of presentations, and they can they can have a lot of a sort of great clinical awareness of the differences, um, and can help help with the diagnostic process as well. So uh, uh, that that can be there's a sort of other key professionals to involve. Um, thanks, Tim. Um, it interested me there that you you talked um, uh, and mentioned it a couple of times about um, how how common uh, FND is, and that just got me thinking. I mean, how common is it in comparison to some of the other conditions that we've been talking about? Well, it's it's you, you could argue it's it's one of the most common diagnoses, and John and his colleague uh, Alan Carson and others in Edinburgh have really led the way. At, uh, sort of doing very large studies in Scotland and John can talk about it a bit more which has been replicated in Australia more recently that it's it's really anything between 10 and 30 percent of neurology outpatients um, and uh, so depending on how you define the disorder or whether it's on its own or, or in combination or part of the problem so so I think it's it's second only really to headache in terms of being the most common type of presentation and similarly in all settings across medicine you see FND as a very common disorder so it's, it's something that's a sort of hidden sort of massive problem really um so it, it's it's not a niche diagnosis by any means it should be a core medical problem that has lots of uh funding and understanding and education but unfortunately although we're making strides in that direction we're still a long way from 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 reaching that Wow. Okay. Well, I've learned something today. That's uh, that surprises me. Um, but John, I'll turn to you. Uh, Tim just touched upon this, but I understand that there are some randomised uh, control trials of therapies associated with FND. What can you tell me about any successful or new treatments for the condition? Yeah. Well, since so in the last couple of years, um, particularly in the UK, um, there've been some larger. Uh, randomized control trials. We're still, I think it's fair to say, at an early stage here of developing our treatments because the field was so stagnant and nothing was happening. So it's really only the last 10 or 15 years. We have, um, for example, a large randomized trial of physiotherapy for functional motor disorders going on in the UK at the moment, which was based, run by Glenn Nielsen from St. George's, and that was based on an earlier uh, pilot trial that Glenn did of 60 patients with really um, impressive outcomes actually for patients with functional motor problems like paralysis and movement disorder. And he developed a treatment based on this very transparent uh, understanding of FND as a condition that varies depending whether you're trying to think about the problem or not, um, and sharing that with patients and doing quite intensive treatment. So, for, so that trial, for example, um, 30 patients who had this intensive physio, 70% had a good outcome in six months, compared to 20% of patients who had the same amount of physio, but just not directed specifically at FND. It was the kind of treatment you might have for stroke. So there's a tantalized, there's a there's a feeling there that, then, that, then, that specific treatments for FND could be, for the right patient, really effective. Not everybody. And we have a large um, randomized trial of psychological therapy, for functional seizures led by Laura Goldstein called the CODES trial, um, which, went, which um, received NIHR funding. And that showed, didn't show actually any, any change in seizure frequency compared to 
quite expert care, but it did show improvement in a whole range of other domains to do with how much Caesar's bothered, bothered people and quality of life and, and general outcome. So um, I, I wouldn't wish to overplay and say we've got amazing treatments for FND. I think it's still a very difficult, could be a very difficult condition to treat. Not everyone can improve, but we've it, relative to other neurological conditions, this is a this is a relatively treatable condition that you don't, I would argue that you don't want to miss it. You know, you don't want to miss a condition that might have some treatment attached to it. Is how I think we should be sort of pitching it with doctors and patients. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I'm sure that uh, some patients and, and viewers to this will be heartened um, to hear that. Um, so, and I think you've both touched upon this, so I, I'm going to put this question to both of you. Um, what advice do you have for medical professionals who may not be very familiar with FND? If I quickly go first for John, yeah. maybe. So um, I think it's really to, to get expert help. Uh, if needed, because there are many people within in the organisation who that you work with who will be familiar with this and can guide you. But of course, educating yourself um, and your colleagues is afterwards is a sort of critical chain that I think needs to happen. And um, uh, John has uh, set up the FND Society with Mark Hallett in the US and uh, Alan Carson and, and and a whole, and so really brought the field together. And there's a great um, there's a great load of resources on the FND Society website, a lot of videos that have been, I think, again, one of uh, there was supposed to be an FND Society meeting, the first big sort of international meeting last year, but COVID obviously put paid to that. But one of the silver linings of COVID is that there's been a lot of online webinars and resources that Alan and uh, others at the FND Society have built up. So, so that'd be one route. And I don't know if John's got any other thoughts about educating. Yeah, I think, I think there's a sort of broader issue here to do with I mean, certainly there's a massive issue to do with training. I certainly wasn't taught anything about functional disorders as a medical student, or it didn't appear in my physician training either, even though it's 30% of what I do, 30% of what everyone does. You know, why is that? There's something really quite wrong, I think, with the way that we are training doctors. And we're saying to, we're saying to them, look, you only need to take things seriously if you can see it on a scan or a blood test. And if it's something that you think might be a functional disorder, well, that's probably not your job. It's probably a psychiatrist's job. Um, so I think we've got a real shift in fundamental attitude to make here to say to doctors, actually, this is your job. These are people with, who are ill. You've got physical symptoms and you have the skills to be able to diagnose them. Um, signpost to treatment. You might not be the person doing the treatment, but you perhaps should follow them up and see what they think and help and look at comorbidities. So. And I think my experience is that when is that doctors are and health professionals are ready for that. They generally find patients with functional disorders quite frustrating because they're not trained to, to deal with them. And they often end up blaming the patient for being difficult. Whereas I think actually, if I'm honest, I think most of nearly all the time, it's the doctors that are difficult because they respond weirdly to the patient. And if they just treat it like any other disorder, everyone's much happy. So uh, uh, you're happier. So I, I don't know how we, there, there's a big problem here because these disorders are very stigmatized. The, the general public have a great difficulty thinking about a condition where there are physical symptoms in which psychological factors are, might be relevant, but actually psychological factors are relevant in all conditions. And you know, people with encephalitis, psychiatric symptoms as part of the condition 
they get them in response to it. Why are we okay with that? But we're not okay with FND. It, it's a, there's a sort of fundamental stigma attitude thing that needs to shift, I think. Wise words, um, bold and wise words. Thank you, John. Um, uh, and you talked a bit about stigma there, Tim. Um, some patients can be left feeling alienated or even stigmatized as FND can be explained to them as a psychological reaction uh, to something such as trauma or stress. I can imagine that, that that can be an added difficulty to someone who's already facing the challenges of FND that we've heard about. Um, what, what's your advice? Yeah, this is a key and critical issue, really, and it's um, there's so much misunderstanding around around the disorder, and a lot of that's you know we haven't helped ourselves as professionals because some of the older models were very sort of dogmatic and simplistic that it was just a stress related disorder, and of course, stress can precipitate most medical conditions and is involved in the etiology of most medical conditions, but it, it does seem you know fairly a bit a bit more. Uh, marked in FND, but it's definitely anything far from necessary or sufficient. So therefore the whole picture um, and many patients don't have any stress uh, in their lives or trauma. Um, and therefore the old model of saying, well, there was this sort of circular argument that it, that uh, psychiatrists particularly uh, and psychologists would get into, which is if you, if you're not reporting or remembering the trauma, then you're either con you know, subconsciously repressing it or, or even worse still denying it. So, so this is the sort of loop that people can get into. Um, but we now know after having done quite a lot of research and sort of summarizing the research that's known that uh, you know, quite a lot of people don't have stress. And even if you do have stress, stress is sort of ubiquitous and, and, and proving it's etiologically related to, to a disorder is very complicated. So, so I think it's something that needs to be explored, but very carefully, but equally at the right time in the right place but equally um i think that just the just the the conflation of what the, the public understanding or lay understanding might be of what a functional disorder is or it's psychological has psychological mechanisms uh it, it can be very confused with it either being you know put on under your control something you should you should just snap out of or, or you know or worse still you're deliberately doing which is sort of, of course sort of nonsense but it's something that people have a fear of either themselves or fear of being judged that that's what other people might think is going on. So, so I think that's, that's a critical issue that's just a public education understanding. And it's like building up what John was saying, there is this sort of public misconception that the illnesses are either physical or they're, they're put on, they're not real um, and they're feigned. Um, and there's of course this other sort of option, which is functional, which is, which is absolutely nothing to do with feigning or being made up, but it's, it's just a different mechanism that can get misconstrued. And the other problem, of course, is just the general globalized stigma around psychology and psychiatry that somehow it's a less valid reason to be ill and stigma around seeking help or going to see a psychiatrist or a psychologist or going into a psychiatric hospital for an outpatient appointment. So, so those are the things we're all, we're all battling with. But I think, again, hopefully just educating the public as well as, and sadly, a lot of, you know, a lot of phys, uh, clinicians have these sort of prejudices as well. It's not just, and that's just due to lack of education. So we need to educate, get our own house in order in, in clinical world, but also educate the wider public. Thanks, Tim. We're going to come back to uh, stigma briefly in a moment, but, but I was surprised to learn, John, that um, abnormal brain function associated with FND can actually be identified physiologically. Is that correct? And can you tell me a bit more about it? Yeah, I think it is. And, and to be honest, I mean, you know, there's been, I mean, it has been a very helpful part of the, the development of the field in the last 10 or 15 years that have been able to look inside the brain and see changes in brain function that do appear to be 
quite specific for FMD and we are, are helping and, and also look different to people pretending to have symptoms, which I think is, is important. And a lot of people sort of expressing surprise at that. Whereas I would say, if you're having, if you've got, if you can't move your leg or you can't, if you've got tremor of your hand, what other organ is that going to be coming from? You know, why wouldn't we see it in the brain? So, and I think it comes back to this sort of dualism that we have in our society, that there's this idea that there's a brain and there's a mind, which is sort of somewhere else, you know. Well, as someone said on Twitter this morning, you know, um, it's a bit like, you know, the mind arises from the brain in the same way that walking arises from legs. You know, they, they kind of go together. You can't have one without the other. Uh, you know, obviously, unless your legs don't work. But so, so, yes, we do have studies that show that I think that enable us to say, when we say to patients, you've got a disorder where your nervous system's not working, particularly the voluntary motor and sensory bits. Um, that's a reasonable thing to say, I think. It's not working. It's working a it's not working in a particular way, which means that when you're trying to do something, it doesn't work. The more you try, the worse it gets. But when you're distracted, the automatic bits are working much better. So that, which is the sort of nature of FND. And I think we are showing changes in the brain, for example, in that there's a network, there's a network disorder, but there's a network in the brain that, for example, is to do with agency, which is that, is that part of the brain that tells you that it's you doing something. Um, those bits of the brain don't look like they're working very well in people with functional movement disorders. So, and that goes along with what the patient's saying. So yes, it looks as if they are shaking their arm in a kind of, you, you wonder if it could be voluntary, but actually what the patient says is true. It's not, it doesn't feel like them that's doing it. It just happens to be using those voluntary movement pathways in the disorder. Wow. Okay, well, I said that we'd come back briefly to um, stigma. And, and John, can you tell me how the functional neurological disorder community is overcoming stigma associated with the condition? Yeah, well, we've, that, that's certainly a big job. You know, as Tim mentioned at the beginning, we've got a condition that used to be called hysteria, but words like psychosomatic. I mean, these are all the lowest of the low kind of in terms of stigma. Um, but I think we have seen something really amazing and positive happening in the last 10 years with the involvement of patients. So, because I think there's only so far that health professionals can take this, but what we've seen is the emergence of patient organizations, for example, the FND Hope and FND Action, FND Dimensions, really um, standing up and saying, look, we, we know this, this, this disorder has this history, we, but we understand that it, it does exist and, we, and we're a, are willing to embrace these non-dualistic ways of thinking. Um, so there's been some incredibly brave advocates and leaders amongst patient groups. There's some fantastic uh, advocates on Twitter like FND Portal and FND Recovery that I'd really recommend um, who are standing up and saying, yes, I actually do have this condition. I, I, I know myself that my leg doesn't work sometimes and then it does work at other times, but I'm not making this up. This is actually happening to me. Um, and so I'm really excited to see where that takes us. And I think that is a challenge to the pe people's prejudice and preconceived ideas out there. And there will be a lot of um, <laughs> conflict and disruption as we go along. But ultimately we've got a group of patients um, explaining to other people what's, what's wrong with them. And I hope with, with all the research that we're doing, brain research, but also 
psychological research, and particularly the trials. I think if you show people, here's a condition that we can diagnose with a, a reasonably high degree of uh, accuracy, and we've got a treatment with a reasonably high evidence base, I think it'd be very hard for people to ignore that and not start to listen. And this is a this is a real condition that they have to grapple with and take seriously. Yeah. Great. Well, it wouldn't be, um, you know, we started this podcast series um, uh, in response to uh, COVID-19. We've now diversified, uh, thankfully, and don't just focus on that. But I have to throw the question to both of you. Have you seen an increase in patients with FMD as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic? Just to go first, John can chip in later, but my... my, my uh, Thoughts are, it's a bit early days to tell yet. So I don't think we've got a huge signal. Um, but as John pointed out earlier on, any physical disease, uh, any neurological disease in particular, is a risk factor for developing functional symptoms. And so therefore, on the basis of that, we could perhaps predict that we'll see an increase. Um, the, uh, obviously, there is this uh, slightly different, you know, or in, perhaps increased risk, you know, change with stress that, that, that's a more vulnerable condition to stress than perhaps others. So the sort of stress of the pandemic might potentially create that. But I think clinically, we're not seeing a particular signal. There's certainly not been any epidemiological studies I'm aware of that really shown us a strong signal yet. Um, but I've certainly seen a few cases precipitated by COVID personally uh, in the last few months. Um, and I imagine John has. The, the other thing just to quickly point out is that uh, the, the uh, COVID vaccines, we've, we've seen a few cases um, precipitating uh, acute sort of strike presentations or acute seizures um, and acute movement disorders as well can happen. So that will happen in a time frame that wouldn't be explainable by another standardised pathological process that we would see resulting from the vaccine constituents. So it's triggered by the vaccine process, not by um, not by the actual vaccine constituents itself. And this is something that's well described in general effort, but we're seeing that and we've written up a few cases that are in press at the moment about that. And it's quite an important thing, again, for clinicians to understand, because otherwise people go down the wrong pathway and go down a sort of stroke thrombolysis pathway rather than getting the right help for FND that they need. Okay, so if I understand you there, you're saying it's not triggered by by the, the, the vaccine itself, but by the process of going to have the vaccine, is that correct? Yes, and it's often the, react, the, the, the physiological response to having a vaccine of having pain in the arm or a systemic upset okay. that is so common, it's, it's, it sort of builds on from that, so it's not the, the drug causing it by a direct mechanism. Okay, John? Yeah, well, I, no, I agree. I've uh, agreed with what Tim said. I think it would be entirely amazing if we weren't seeing patients with, uh, you know, either had COVID or had COVID vaccine that were not developing FND. And I did a seminar with FND Hope at the beginning of the pandemic, just saying that we would, we would see FND triggered by, by COVID because it's triggered by any any illness. And we see, you know, so we've seen it after flu, we've seen it after Epstein Barr, and you know, that's what that's what you get any kind of physical illness. Will, will trigger it. I think the, the, the studies I'm aware of have definitely not shown an increase in FND, particularly during lockdown. Uh, we see, there was one of, we did with neurosurgical colleagues where a particular type of presentation that was related, strongly related to a functional disorder did not change in frequency. I think what that showed me was that people, in fact, people were still presenting to hospital with it. What that showed me is how, the, how distressed and uh, scary having a fun acute FND is. They were willing to come to hospital in the middle of a lockdown um, because it was so worrying what was happening to them. So these are not disorders that go away when people, they're not just sort of worried well people turning up um, 
thing because they because they can they're turning up because they're, they're really worried about what's happening to their body so mm -hmm. i think paradoxically the lockdown actually was interesting because it it placed a lot of people who'd not experienced that in a situation that a lot of fnd patients find themselves in which is that they are locked down a lot of the time by their physical disability and, you know patients with encephalitis too can't leave the house or if they do leave the house they're worried about having a seizure uh, or people staring at them these are these are things that all people with, with patients with neurological disability experience so some of my patients actually paradoxically found a sense of relief actually that everyone was in the same boat as them for a bit of time and they didn't have this expectation that they had to go out, which is can be pretty scary when you've got these conditions. And I think now, as we see locked these things changing and opening up again, there's a sort of that 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 creates a challenge for some of my patients. And so I've seen, perhaps, if anything, a bit of an emergence of symptoms as things return to normality. Wow. Okay, well, um, we're coming towards the end of the podcast. I've just got a couple more questions for you. Um, is we, we uh, you've both touched upon this uh, in different ways but but just so that we kind of have resources all in one place is there anywhere that people who are listening uh, to this can go for extra information about fnd what where would you both recommend um well as tim as tim said we've got i think i'd recommend the the patient-led organizations fnd hope and fnd action particularly there's if you're in australia fnd australia um and, uh, and there are others. There's the, for health professionals, there's the fndsociety.org. I also made, I, I started a website about in 2009, um, mainly out of frustration that there was no material out there for patients. It's called neurosymptoms.org. And so that's a site made by myself and now increasingly my colleagues for hopefully it's fairly reliable uh, patient information for patients and we're about to launch a new version next week with an app so uh, so you'll be able to see that soon too oh wow exciting tim anything to add there in terms of resources no i, I think the only thing just again to to i think another great thing is is look at some of the online advocates as well so uh, john mentioned fnd portal fnd recovery all the patient organizations and charities have have Twitter accounts and they're often a very good source of information and uh, some of them particularly do nice threads so explainers about things for the, that for the for patients or the public which are great. Great it's great to hear you both so passionate about uh, you know the value of patient organizations because certainly in in the length of time that I've been doing this that that's been a personal challenge um, I can remember when I first started working on encephalitis 21 years ago, and, and I, I can remember, it, you know, more than once, but a, a particular doc, doctor stamping his foot and telling me that we don't get encephalitis in this country. And, you know, so I had many challenges like that. Um, uh, so it's great to hear you both being such such wonderful advocates of patient organisations. Um, um, well, I'm going to bring the podcast to a close. I've taken up um, a lot of your time and I know that you're both very busy. But before we do, is there anything that either of you would like to add or say that you felt we haven't covered today? I think that's been a really, that's been a brilliant discussion, Ava. I do hope that people listening, particularly if they're patients listening who, who've had encephalitis uh, or who were misdiagnosed with encephalitis and now have FND or vice versa, that I hope this really helps them to see that FND is just as valid 
uh, a diagnosis of encephalitis just have a different the different mechanisms and different treatments and i hope they can find health professionals who recognize that as well because i know that's a I know, yeah i know that is a challenge around the country but yeah, yeah. thanks john tim anything to add um i guess just one final thing is that part of our mission is to not only explain and educate but also just normalize what is actually a very normal process we all get functional symptoms to some degree and you could argue and i think it's almost certainly true that um that there's a everyone there's a there's a net there's a functional component of every symptom and that's the, the window in which placebo works and that, as we know from trials that's 20 30 percent often of any response to any treatment so therefore that must be acting on a functional component and it's whether it's enough to be enough to be considered a disorder or need separate treatment but that's really just to normalize that this is a normal response that happens in all of us and it just gets very severe in some unfortunate people i think that's really what i'd say yeah thank you well thank you both we've covered an awful lot as you say we're deeply grateful to you for taking the time to chat with me today um, for everybody listening the encephalitis society services remain unaffected so if you need any support or information our teams remain at your service go to encephalitis.info for contact details or you can chat online with any of our team and as always if you can support our work during this very challenging time please visit encephalitis.info forward slash donate most of all keep washing your hands stay safe and get vaccinated thank you Thanks. Thanks. Bye.